wonderful singing this morning, and thank you to our musicianal team to prepare the music and to minister in leading that way today, and thank you to the church for your participation in worship as well. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3 today, Revelation 3, and I'm going to jump right into reading the passage. If you need a Bible, we have those right there in front of you. Pew Bible, I guess, uh, should be scattered about if you'd like one to use today, but Revelation chapter 3, right towards the back of the Bible. We're going to start in verse number 14, and it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, give us the last of the seven churches recorded here in the first three chapters of Revelation. The church of Laodicea has been considered the unhealthiest, the most unhealthiest of all of these churches. And these churches... We understand churches are people, not facilities, not buildings. Churches are not programs. Churches are not methods. Churches are people. That's why we often say that we go beyond our walls to accomplish the Great Commission, following in God's great commandments, love God and love people, because we are not the church here central. We are the church going beyond our walls. And so as we study this church of the Laodiceans, we understand that we cannot look at these letters as just ancient relics to marvel at. We must look at them as a reflection as which we can maybe see ourselves as well. So the city of Laodicea, it was in the Lycus River Valley, and it was a pretty prominent city. So this was uh, something that was of a wealthy city. They were very wealthy. They were very prominent. They had great prestige. It was the most important commercial center in all of that region. They were known for their banking center where people would come. And so they were by default very proud of their wealth. This was also a place with beautified and magnificent temples and theaters where people would gather for their entertainment. The city was known for its manufacture of rich garments, and they would take these of black, soft, glossy wool, which would make carpets of their day. And so they would manufacture these, they would sell them, they were known for this, but then they also had a very popular medical school right there in Laodicea. This medical school studied ancient medicine, 
But the city, though it was known for a lot of very powerful and prestigious things and was known throughout all of the region and became a very central point, there was something of an inadequacy to this city. They did not have their own water supply. Now, for a city, this is a major element for survival. Your own water supply would be very important for the thriving of your people, just even for them to survive. But what they had to do was build underground aqueducts in order to bring water from other places to their city. And so this aqueduct system caused the water to arrive to the city of Laodicea to be lukewarm. It was not only lukewarm, but it would have been dirty. It would have been tepid water as it would flow through miles and miles of underground aqueducts. Now, near Laodicea, you had Hierapolis, which was about six miles north of them, which was known for their hot springs. People would travel there to sit in these amazing hot springs of being electrified and refreshed. And then 10 miles east of them, you would find the city of Colossae, which was known for their cold springs that would come out of the water or come out of the ground. And so these cold springs were refreshing, and, and, uh, and these were also coming off of the mountain streams that provided them with these cold water. So Laodicea, when visitors would come, they were not accustomed to the water of the city. And so as they would take a drink of their water that was lukewarm and at times even dirty, they would immediately spit it out. And we know what that looks like for, for lukewarm drinks on a hot summer day here in Florida, or really any day other than January and February, in a hot day here in Florida, you want a refreshing cold drink. Some of you iced tea fans, anybody an iced tea fan out there? Okay, so you want a cold iced tea. By the way, they're building an an iced tea restaurant or store right there off of South Florida Avenue. Is Brad in here? Is he with the kiddos? So uh, he knows about this iced tea place with a drive-thru even. So you iced tea fans, you'll be looking for that. Uh, I don't like iced tea, so I won't be there. But you want iced tea on ice. You want your cold water. You want it to be cold. And in the mornings, how many coffee drinkers in here? Coffee drinkers, you want your coffee to be hot so that it gives you that spark, a little bit of electrifying, and it's just to give you that oomph ready for your day. So we all know what it's like to drink lukewarm cup of coffee or a lukewarm cup of water. That's the example that Jesus is giving as he relates to the people of Laodicea. They would have known right off with him saying, you're not cold and you're not hot. Oh, cold, the mountain streams of Colossae. You're not hot. Oh, the hot springs coming out of Hierapolis. They knew what those meant. But he said, instead, church, you are lukewarm and I spit you out of my mouth. So here, I believe that we find some really crucial lessons. Again, not as looking at the church of Laodicea as a body of believers in that city saying, they had a lot of problems. Not looking at it that way, but looking at it as a mirror, as a reflection of us today. Can we look at the lessons from Laodicea and see what it is in our own life that we need to be conscientious and aware of? And so here today, we'll dig into these verses, the lessons from Laodicea. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask you for your guidance today. I thank you for the gentleman that at the end of the class even closed us in prayer by saying that it would not be mine, my words as the preacher, but that it would be words from above, from you. And that would certainly be our desire today. 
We want your message to be given to us. We want it to be relevant, and we want it to come to a place of application. We will decide today by looking at the reflection of Laodicea and seeing, is that me? Is that my life? Do I need to do some, some work, some tweaking? Do I need forgiveness, repentance, the ability to be restored and move forward? So, Lord, would you take these moments together and guide our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. Right away, the writer, John, he is giving the words of the Lord himself as they are being given to him. And he writes unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, writing these things, saying, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so we, we see right away the importance of these words. And then in verse number 17, we see the first lesson taught is that they were reliant on themselves. They were fully depending on themselves of what was going to cause them to find happiness and success. You see, they were pleased with themselves. I mean, why wouldn't they be? They were very pleased with how life was unfolding. They were a wealthy city. They were a prominent city. They were a central hub for many people in that region to come to. They had a very prestigious school that was learning the ancient medical ways. And there was so much that was causing them to be pleased with themselves. You know, they were not being careful of the sin of self-satisfaction. We must be careful as well when we look in our own lives and see that too often we're not burdened by our own faults. We all know that we're human and we have our own faults that we carry. And, and uh, sometimes, though, we just want to pass it on as quickly as they come so that I certainly don't want other people to see my faults and failures. And often, I don't even want to come to grips with it myself. And so they were pleased with themselves. Now, we should never be satisfied with where we are spiritually. I, I think that's really important for us to grab a hold of because some of us want to just park it in neutral and say, well, I've been saved for 20 years, and, and now it's time to just kind of coast with what I know. It's time now to just rest assured in what I've experienced, and all of a sudden, this burning fire that was in us to learn more and to, and to be more for Christ is, is no longer there because we've become satisfied and self-pleased. This is not a do more mentality. Please don't be mistaken by that. It's, it's easy for us so often to preach a message of do more, do more, and do more because it becomes a very blanketed statement that really helps motivate. And so we can all act, walk out of here and say, I need to read more of God's word. I need to pray more to him. Uh, I need to be more holy. And that becomes a do, do, do. Just how much more can I function for God? So the mentality this morning is not that of how much more can you do the mentality this morning is how much more will I allow God to do through me? How much more will I find reliance on Him? How much more will I find this dependency to be on Him instead of myself? So the people of Laodicea, they were struggling because of this. And a true indication of the church's spiritual decay was that it, it spoke of herself instead of, of Christ. That's why very important, even just in a follow-up, this morning of yesterday, it's really important for us as a church body to always remember that it's about, it's about God. It's about God's glory, and it's about God's work, and it's about Him accomplishing what He saw fit to accomplish. There was a lot of manpower that went into it, and there was a lot of planning and preparing, and I really appreciate 
uh, Michael and, and all that he did to make the event happen from the very start to the very finish. But all of that gets credited back to God because there is no self-reliance on, on us as a church. And so we can never be satisfied with where we are. We've got to always look to see what God wants to continue to accomplish. For example, Paul would write in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save, or accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Too often the church is all full of glory of self. We expand, we do a new lobby, we finish up the entryways, and we say, look at what we're able to do. But that is God's working through us. We see people saved, we see people baptized, we see people join the church. If you, were, if you weren't here two weeks ago, we, we had an incredible Sunday of eight people baptized, eight people joined, and six people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. But you know what? We don't bank on that to tell that story for the next three months. That's what God did, but God wants to continue to do. And so church at Parkway, we cannot become self-reliant, self-dependent, saying, let's kick it into neutral and just enjoy the moment. Let's always have goals and vision to God continuing to work through us. So we say, how can I glory in myself, as Paul would say, except or save I glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can Parkway be a church that will say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, Revelation 5. And so we see then also that they were sin-filled and enjoying it. They were so enamored by their pleasures. They were so much satisfied with themselves that it just caused them to sin and to be deceived by that. Now, there's some really important things that when people decide to kick God out of their life, or when churches decide to kick God out of their church, then it becomes run by their desires. That's why from the very beginning in Discover Parkway, we always say in lesson number one, this church is not about me and it is not about you. This is not us. This is the audience of one. This is God. And so prayer has to be given, God, how will you lead in decisions that need to be made? God, how would you help in this direction? Would you give us your wisdom? Would you give Holy Spirit's leading? And would you ultimately give us peace? So that becomes our desire is saying that, God, we're not kicking you out. This is not about our desires. This is about you. And so sin will always deceive us. Some are sitting in here this morning so duped and deceived by your own sin. You are living in a life of sin, enamored by the pleasure. The book of Hebrews reminded us, enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. That word season is not that we're going to enjoy the labor or the, the results of our sin for just a, uh, a fall season or three-month period or a quarter of the year. The word season there means temporary, that it only endures for a time. It has a limit on it. And so some of you are living and enjoying your sin, but it's only going to be temporary. It will not last forever. Sin has a way of deceiving us. It has a way of destroying us. It, it ruins people's lives. It ruins people's marriages, their families, and, it, and sin ruins churches. 
when dishonesty comes in and disunity and, and selfishness and pride and it will split a church in half and, and arrogancy comes into the, the church body through the leadership or through the pew sitter and all of a sudden there's conflict that won't be resolved or conversations that won't be had and all of a sudden sin has destroyed the local church. John 10.10 10 reminds us that the thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus continued and said, but I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And then sin always brings death, spiritual death and sometimes physical death. Now, God says at the church of Laodicea in verse number 17, he said, you think you're rich and increased with goods and you have need of nothing and you don't know. Knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He uses these very purposely. Remember the description of the city of Laodicea. The people in the church of Laodicea, they would have been a part of wealth. They would have been a part of knowledge. They would have been a part of prosperity. They would have been a part of knowing that their school was the one that had discovered the, the, the eye salve that they could put anointment on the eyes to, to cure for this, this blindness that was coming to people. And so they claimed they were wealthy, but God said they were poor. They claimed they had the best medicine for eyes, but God said, you're blind. They claimed they were makers of fine wool for clothing, but God said, you're naked. And so much here all goes back to a very simple word, distracted. I believe that the church of Laodicea became so distracted by the elements around them. The school was growing. The banking industry was booming. The manufacturers of wool for carpet and clothing was growing. And so there was so much vibrancy all around them that they had kicked God out of being dependent on Him, and they became distracted by everything else around them that would give them sense of satisfaction. This distraction kept them from pursuing after God. It kept them from growing closer to God. It kept them from being totally sold out to the things of God. So we ask ourselves this question, what is it like for us today, 21st century, 2018? What are we distracted by? What are the elements outside of the church body that distract us from keeping God as the main thing? We want to be like the church down the road, or we want to see the growth pattern rapid, uh, happen rapidly, or we want to find a fruit for our labor, or we want to see something happening right away. Or even in our own lives, we say, if I'll just pursue this career, then I'll get this amount of money, and I'll be happy with my cars and my houses and my toys and my trinkets. If I can just get my kids to listen, I can put them in this education, and, and they will be smart, and they will grow, and then they will go off, and they'll make their millions, and then they'll take care of me during my retirement years. And all of these goals and ambitions come at us from all distracting elements, and that's what causes us to be dependent on ourselves. But he continues in verse 19, because God, God is going to pointedly deal with this. He's going to do something about it. In verse number 19, he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And remember, God is speaking to his church. He is speaking to Christians. He is speaking to people who have become distracted by what is going on around them. They have become so dependent and reliant on themselves 
that now the correction of God is coming down on them. He chastens his children, and I think all of us in here would be willing to say that we're thankful for God's love. We're thankful that God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. I'm thankful that I have a substitute named Jesus who suffered and died in my place and who paid my sin account so that today I can stand with great confidence that if I take my last breath, I know without a doubt I will go to heaven. I don't have any reason to think that that won't take place because of my faith and trust in Christ. Now, if I put my faith and trust in myself, I'm a wreck. I can be a very, I can be a very unstable mess on my own hands. Because if I look at my last week and I look at my own track record and it all comes down to me balancing out the whole scheme of things of good versus bad, if I take my last breath today, I'm not going to hold it and say that the good's going to always outweigh the bad. I'm thankful, though, that that's not how eternity and salvation works. Because God said already that it is by grace through faith plus nothing else. So it's grace and faith that causes us to receive this free gift of salvation Nothing of our good works, nothing on our own accord, nothing that we can accomplish. So he chastens his very own. And as a parent, many of you in here, we know that there comes that time for discipline and guidance that is motivated out of love, never anger. By the way, parents in here, many in here who have children in your home, whether they're children or teenagers or grandparents, when you interact with your grandchildren on a regular basis... Your, your punishment and guidance is always rooted out of a motivation of love, never out of anger. What happens is, is we become so self-centered and frustrated that that causes us to say things that we really shouldn't say and causes us to act out in ways that we shouldn't act out on. Sometimes we need to send that child to their room or to an isolated place so that we can have some time to gather our own thoughts so that we know by the Holy Spirit's leading how we want to handle the conversation and the issues. Now, I'm with you in the trenches. I've got a nine and a six-year-old, and though they seem like angels, they are far from angels. They take after their mother more than you realize, all right? And so with their sin nature, sometimes we have to deal with those issues. And I can't tell you that every time I have always responded the correct way, but I can tell you that I am asking God to lead me as a parent. And Natalie and I pray often, Lord, would you help us to parent them biblically? And so I don't want to be oblivious. I don't want to pretend like nothing's happening. I don't want to say they're going to grow out of it. I don't want to say it's not going to affect them in the long run because that's being oblivious to the sin nature that they are living in. So as a parent, I want to say, God, give me discernment. Give me wisdom. How do I handle this? What do I make a big deal of? And how do I help them? Now they get into teenage years. And you say, well, you don't know teenagers. You're right. I don't have a teenager in my home, but I dealt with them for 11 years at a ministry. And I interacted with them three to four times a week. Now they weren't in their home environment where they're the most comfortable and most obnoxious. I understand that. But the truth is, is there's been plenty of conversations with parents to realize that teenagers are a separate breed. And all of God's people said, amen, all right? So they're a separate breed. We understand that. But they need even more of your involvement in their life. 
They need more patience, they need more love, and they need more of you involved. Don't check out on them just because they're a teenager. Don't think that they don't need your help. Don't think that they don't need your guidance. When you look at your heavenly father, do you want God checking out on you? Do you want God leaving you on your own? Some say, yes, I do. And you know the times you do want God leaving on your own is when you're living in rebellion and carnality and you want nothing to do with the holiness of God. And so don't ever be oblivious to what your teenager is going through. Have the hard conversations. Sit down with love, not anger, and be motivated to help them and to help them the best you can. You don't understand them. They don't understand you. It is two separate generations and two separate worlds. You don't understand their language or their lingo. You don't know their world. But that's what it means to have conversation. And parents of young people where you're talking four, five, six, seven years old, start investing at that age. You say, well, it's too late. Well, that's okay because it's time to plug in now. Grandparents, don't check out. God has placed you in an opportunity to be a spiritual emphasis and a guidance in that life. Don't think that the grandparents' home just becomes the place where all rules go out the window. Allow it to be a place of balance. Throw them a Reese's peanut butter cup. That's okay. Do whatever it takes to put a couple of scoops extra of ice cream in the bowl. That's all right. That's what happens in our world. But that's okay because I'm confident that grandma and grandpa, both on the Indiana side and the Florida side, are always pouring emphasis of spirituality into hearts and lives. And so you, as grandma and grandpa, need to do the same thing. Look at that opportunity to pour spiritual emphasis. Don't go against mom and dad. I can't believe that's mom's rule. Oh, I can't believe your dad responded that way. What good does that do, grandma? What good does that do, grandpa? You're building instability in that little heart and in that little world. So you come behind a parent and you be a support. And it all comes out of a spiritual emphasis. When we look at how God deals with his children, Proverbs 3 reminds us, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. And so God is giving that guidance and correction in our life as his children. So parents, definitely show the love of Jesus by being proper in your method of correction. And parents, be involved. I can't emphasize that enough. Don't let your terrible two rule and reign the world. You grab a hold of that heart, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be labor. But you have signed up for the task, and God wants to help you to do it. And so you embark on that. Don't not do it, and don't ever overdo it. Purposely pray for wisdom and balance. Secondly, we see in this area of this correction by God is that he calls for passion and repentance. I love this because in verse number 19, not only does he rebuke and chasten, but there is a change there. And parents, you remember as you've corrected your children, you've wanted a change to happen, right? And so if a day goes by or two days go by or three days go by and no change has happened in the heart of that rebellion, you know that whatever the punishment and correction was, was pointless and worthless. It did nothing. And so you have to come back with the same emphasis over and over and over again. Because correction is not done so that somebody just feels sorry and so that they'll walk around moping the rest of the day. That's not the goal of correction. 
You don't look at your child three hours later and still see them moping and saying, ha ha, serves them right. Finally, they feel sorry for what they've done. That's not the goal of correction. Does God want you moping around after he's forgiven you? Does God want to chasten his children and see them mope around for two or three days? No, he wants change to happen. And this change comes by way of being zealous or passionate and repentant. It comes from a contrite spirit. Bring punishment and rebuke until you break the spirit. You bring the chastisement to that child, either a teenager, a child, whoever it is in your care, you bring that until you can see a change of direction. If the punishment is brought and they scream louder, then you have to keep the punishment. Now, you don't beat them to a bloody pulp. We understand that. There is proper measures to be taken. Sometimes there is a pause that says, you know what? You're going to need to calm down and we're going to come back to this later. And that's what God does. He brings the chastisement to see the change in our heart. He calls for the church to be zealous, to be passionate, and to be repentant. And so if they're not going to have a change of direction, that's what conviction is. Conviction says, oh my, that's me you're talking about. Conviction says, I am at fault. I take full responsibility for punching my sister. I take full responsibility for lashing out in a disrespectful way to my mother. I take full responsibility for cheating on the test. I take full responsibility for lying so that I could get out of this task. Okay, so it's finding the fault that you and I commit. And it's saying, I take ownership of that and I'll make it right and I will move past it. So God calls for the church of Laodicea to repent and be zealous. I'm thankful that God who extended his grace to me for my salvation is the same God who extends his gospel for me to live a life that is passionate and God honoring. Do you understand that? The same God who extended his grace to us for salvation is the same God who's extending his gospel to us so that we might be passionate and God-honoring. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8 gives us the solution that God commendeth his love. He extended and demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we find that if we'll just confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So the same God of extending his grace for salvation is the same God who takes those verses and gives us the power through the gospel to live a God-honoring life. The last thing we see is the pattern of the church of Laodicea as that they were dedicated back to God. The end result in verse 20 and 21, God has called for them to be repentant and to become passionate. Why? Because he has, he has extended his chastisement. He has brought down the hammer. And now verse 20 gives us the results. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in with him and I will sup with him and he with me. This is restoration. 
This is a restored relationship that is going to be brought back to fellowship. So as the people repent and seek this restoration, God is willing to forgive of all sin and failure. 1 John 1, 9, as John would write this letter to the churches, this again was written to Christians. And he says, if we confess, Christians, if we confess, church, if we confess with our mouth, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this reassures the Christians that we will find that forgiveness when restoration has been disturbed, when conflict has happened in our life, we'll find this fellowship restored. I'm getting a little bit of a ring, guys. Can you bring me down a little bit? I'm not sure what we got going. I'm sorry. Verse number 20, we see this fellowship restored and the picture of Christ is standing at the door knocking. He is being persistent. He is looking for something as he's waiting and pleading for true repentance out of a genuine heart. And this genuine invitation is given to the church. And so today we see that there are many churches who are operating in the name of Christ, but with no evidence that Christ is in the church. How many churches can say that God is just still knocking at their door, wondering if he will be allowed back in, if he will be allowed to come and sup and to fellowship and to be a part of them again? Now, we don't have to list the churches, but we know that there are a lot of churches who will claim the name of Christ, but Christ is nowhere evident. May Parkway never be described as that. The fellowship that we need to seek after is that of Christ being in the church and the one who will run and operate his church. You remember that Jesus said, this is my church and I will build it. And so we can back up with great confidence and say, this is God's church. He will build it. This is what God's going to do. And we get to be a part of that and watch it unfold. Now, verse 21 gives us the future reward because he says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. This word overcometh is a really interesting one because it means one that wins the victory. Now, yesterday was a bad sports day. I just, uh, nobody I cheered for really won. Um, really, Georgia-Florida games, you know, it's like a coin toss to me. I've got friends that cheer for Georgia, friends who cheer for Florida. So um, it's a coin flip. But the Red Sox won last night. Ah, and, uh, you know, other football teams are winning. My teams aren't winning. But when you look at this, this overcoming, one that, that is gaining, winning the victory, I am so thankful that my security and my joy is not found in Americanized sports programs. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that my security and my hope is found in the victory that I have in Jesus Christ. And you see here this word overcometh, it's in the Greek, the tense that it is in, it is not the past. It's not that we used to have victory. It's not that one time I had victory. It's not like that um, one soccer season 20 years ago on this soccer field out here where we had one victory all season long, all right? So it's not just that one victory that came sports banquet. We talked about that one victory that season and how much better we were going to be next year, okay? It's not about once happened, conquered, subdued, or conquered, but rather the tense is the present it means that one who is continuing to conquer, continuing to overcome, continuing to subdue. So he says, church, 
if you are the ones who are overcoming, if you are one that in present tense you are continuing to see victory in your life. By the way, victory comes through growth. So I'm able to say no to my flesh and yes to my love and loyalty to Christ. And this victory comes with great future reward. Christ promises the believers a seat on the throne that he shares with his heavenly father. In verse 21, we see that this symbolizes the truth that we will reign with him forever. One day, sin will not be anymore in our life. And there is coming a day where it will be over. And the suffering that we encounter each and every day and the temptations that we battle through each and every week will no longer be there. And we will reign with our Father sitting at the right hand of God. Now, in closing, a story that I had discovered probably 15 years ago. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie here that I want to finish with. It's a member of a certain church who had previously been attending the services regularly, and this individual stopped coming completely. So after a few weeks and months, the pastor decided to visit them and little see what was going on. It was a cold and chilly evening when the pastor knocked on the door and he found the man was home alone sitting in front of a fire that was blazing real nice and gave a lot of warmth to the sitting area. So guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him kindly and led him to a big chair near the fireplace that, and they just sat there and kind of waited for conversation to start. The pastor made himself comfortable, but he, he said absolutely nothing to the man. In the grave silence of really awkwardness, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. And so after some minutes, the pastor took the fire tongs off the side of the fireplace and he carefully picked up a brightly burning ember and he placed it on one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent, not saying anything. The host watched all of this with quite fascination as well as a little bit of confusion. So as the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a, a momentary glow and then its fire was no more. It was done. It was gone. Soon it was cold and dead as a doornail, they would say. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. And just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember and he placed it back in the middle of the fire. And immediately it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached for the door to leave, his host said, thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back to church on Sunday. You know, the reality is, is that when we look at our life, too often Christians are involved in isolation. We think that we've got everything under control, that's reliant on ourselves. That's where the church of Laodicea was. And when we become so reliant on ourselves that we, 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 we separate ourselves from, from the brethren, from, from the church. And we try to do life on our own until we realize that it's pretty rough when I face temptations and then I get in my carnal flesh and, and all of a sudden the one burning ember that used to be a flame has now become cold and deadened. It's no longer. And for some of us in here, you say, well, I'm here on a Sunday morning. yes. And this is not about church attendance. This is all about your heart and passion for Christ. Where are you in your relationship with God? 
Remember, it's not about a do system. It's about what Christ wants to do through you. And so have you opened yourself to that? What lessons have you learned from Laodicea? Sometimes God's going to have to chasten you. He's going to have to get a hold of your heart. And he's going to bring the rebuke in order to see passion and repentance in your heart. But maybe today you're at that last place with the church of Laodicea. And now it's time to be dedicated back to God. It's time to be the ember off the hearth and put back in the middle of the flame so that God can use you in a powerful way. Father, thank you for the lessons of Laodicea. Thank you for using this church as an example to us in the book of Revelation. I pray now in these closing moments that you would use something that we've heard today to prompt our heart for change. I don't know what that looks like and I don't know what it means, but Lord, you do. And as we've sat here quietly in our seat, we've digested your message. We know what that means within our own hearts. You brought something to our attention that needs to be addressed and so may we have the courage to deal with that today. May you bring us to a place of passion and repentance. May we find ourselves living for you so that we can see you do great things through us. Father, would you work in the Christian's heart? If there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, would they see that the, the power of the gospel to change their life, that Jesus loves them, died for them, and, and had victory over the grave as he came back to life three days later, and so he had victory over sin and death and now wants to give us that living victory to live in. Or if there's somebody here that doesn't know that Jesus in a personal way, would you lead their heart as well? We'll give you honor and glory for what you'll accomplish through this time of invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, sir and ma'am, all around the room, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, where are you at today? When you look at the lessons of Laodicea, there's a lot to be learned. Don't be reliant and dependent on yourself. Don't live such a life that causes the chastisement to have to come. Live a life that is on fire for God. Faithful, fervent, plugging forward, moving ahead with Him. But maybe today there's just some things in your mind that God has brought to your attention. You say, I need to, I need to handle that. And if that's you today, I rejoice with you and I pray with you. And I'll ask God to give you the words and the guidance as you talk to him in just a moment. Sir or ma'am, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, oh man, I was walking the aisles last night just praying over each pew. And there are some of you in here who have heard the gospel over and over and over again. And you still are not accepting that free gift. And if that's you today, would you find yourself to be humbled to a place of reliance on him? If that's you today, Oh, I'd love that opportunity to show you what Jesus Christ has done for you. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed all around the room? Father, use this time now to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As the piano continues to play, use this opportunity to get alone with God. Here at the altar, there at your seat, but you just take time to talk as God leads in your heart today.